Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Several days after the November 3rd elections, the AP and other major news outlets called the presidential race. Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris are the president-elect and vice president-elect, respectively. President Donald Trump has so far refused to concede. He and some of his supporters are making baseless accusations of widespread election fraud, and his campaign has filed numerous lawsuits in several states challenging the election results. Control of the U.S. Senate remains in question pending the results of a runoff election in Georgia in early January. Should both Democratic candidates prevail in that election, the Senate would be split 50-50 between the two parties, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would cast the deciding vote. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson joins us to discuss the election results both nationally and here in Minnesota. Professor Pearson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. Joe Biden has surpassed the 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency, and most major news outlets have declared Biden the winner of the 2020 presidential race. But Trump has not yet conceded. Just how certain, given that reality, is Biden's victory? Well, it won't be absolutely official until Congress certifies the votes of the Electoral College, and that will happen on January 6th. Um, But it seems quite certain. Um, Each state will go through their canvassing process and do their final audit and certify the vote totals, um, and that should happen in the coming days. But given the wide margins in several of the states, It seems that even if there is a recount in certain states, it would be highly unlikely for President Trump to win at this point, given the numbers that are in. Is there any precedent in American history of a political opponent or party not accepting the outcome of an election? Not at the presidential level, no. We're in unprecedented territory here, and a concession is not actually necessary. Um, When the votes are certified and the Electoral College votes are counted, um, on January 20th at noon, Joe Biden will become president. But nonetheless, for the legitimacy of our democracy, it would be uh, very helpful if President Trump would concede. With Trump critical and even dubious of the election results, how do you think the transition of power will go for Biden? Do you think he will have a harder time than previous presidents setting up his team in the White House? Well, that's that's an interesting question, because it it should be noted that the transition um, with the Trump presidency was not particularly smooth. And that had nothing to do with President Obama's administration. That had to do with the fact that the Trump team was slower uh, than previous newly elected administrations. And even when he was still a candidate in getting his transition team going. And so so that transition wasn't particularly smooth. Now, of course, uh, Joe Biden served in the White House as vice president for eight years and has an array of people that he has worked with in the past um, that he has been relying on and will continue to rely on as part of the transition team. Um, But if the Trump administration is not cooperative and we're already hearing early signs of that, that is troubling. Um, And it will will impose some barriers, um, but certainly in terms of uh, appointing people, we've already heard about a COVID task force that the vice president is proceeding, or the former vice president is proceeding with the work of a transition team. Let's talk about Biden's victory speech. What message did he give to the country? 
Well, it was absolutely a speech about healing, about hope, about bringing people together. Um, he campaigned on those themes. He said repeatedly uh, that he would be a president for all Americans, not just Americans who voted for him. And he really re-emphasized those themes in his victory cer- speech on Saturday night. What was the significance of having Vice President-elect Kamala Harris deliver a speech as well? It was highly significant. Um, you know, first of all, she emerged in this stunning white pantsuit um, as sort of an ode both to the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage and also to the path that uh, Hillary Clinton blazed four years ago by winning the popular vote, even not winning the electoral college vote. And so, you know, just her presence was significant. Um, her powerful speech was significant. And of course, uh, her election is historic as the first woman uh, and first woman of color vice president. Four years ago, almost every major poll and most news organizations predicted Hillary Clinton would defeat Donald Trump. This year, most polling showed Joe Biden with a sizable lead. How reminiscent was this election night to that of 2016? Well, in some ways, there were familiar patterns. Um, It is important to note that while the polling was off, and it was off systematically in one direction of under-recognizing support for President Trump and other Republican candidates, it was off. It was probably when all the votes are tallied sort of less off than we think it was on election night. But certainly on election night, as those Florida results came in, and it was clear that the polls were off, um, and they were particularly off in the Miami-Dade area uh, with the polls underestimating support for Trump overall, and in particular with uh, Latin next men, that the polls were off. And it was hard four years ago for pollsters to reach enough Trump supporters. um, And then they didn't use statistical adjustments enough in their polls to fully account for the popularity uh, of President Trump among whites, particularly white men without college degrees. And in 2016, education was a bigger factor in predicting vote choice than it had been in previous elections. And those with college degrees are more likely to respond to polls. And so there were all sorts of problems with the polls four years ago that led to a lack of an understanding in key states uh, of support for for President Trump. Actually, four years ago, support for Hillary Clinton uh, was measured pretty well by the polls. It was the underestimate of support for President Trump. And that's what we saw to a lesser degree, but we still saw in 2020 an underestimate of support for President Trump and for Republican candidates more generally. There were many House and Senate races where Republicans won or won by bigger margins than the polls anticipated. Most of the pollsters seemed to be fairly confident that they had corrected the deficiencies of 2016 and this time they were going to get it right. Do we have a sense of what happened this time around? I mean, again, I think it was just the difficulty of getting that sample accurate, of getting enough uh, people who support President Trump. And the one of the other problems in, that was particular to 2020 is estimating that likely voter. So we had record turnout on both sides of the aisle in 2020. And so I, I also think that pollsters may have um, gotten their likely voter model off as well. Um, And then the other issue is that, you know, the polls were off and they were off systematically in one direction. But the other problem is that these prediction experts use these aggregated polls to predict an outcome. 
And so if we think about Nate Silver and Nate Cohn from the uh, 538 and New York Times, respectively, you know, a lot of people are going to those sites to say, oh, you know, Biden has a 70 something percent chance of winning when really people should just look at the polling averages and realize that, you know, these polls have a margin of error. And so looking at the prediction, you know, percentage chance of victory is just not helpful in understanding the dynamics of the election. Is there any reason why it seems particularly challenging to poll Trump supporters? I think because Trump supporters are less likely to respond to polls. And pollsters thought that they had it right in terms of what's called weighting their sample to sort of overcount those who do respond to polls, um, but they didn't. They didn't this year, uh, they didn't four years ago. And so because Trump supporters are less likely to respond to polls, pollsters did not have um, enough of them in their sample. And to the extent that they did, they didn't weight it appropriately. Democrats had hoped to gain more seats in the U.S. House and take control of the Senate, and the polling looked good for both of those outcomes. Why was the polling off in these races as well? I think for similar reasons um, that that Republican voters um, were less likely to respond to polls and then less likely to be counted appropriately in polls. Um, and it, it is something that, you know, I'm not a pollster, but that pollsters will be trying to figure out once again, because one of the critiques of 2016 was that there were not enough polls. And that cannot be said of 2020. Um, in fact, we're already hearing sort of people saying there were too many polls. That So that led to overconfidence in, in the polling estimates. And, you know, I just sort of shake my head. And really, I think polls are great for many reasons, but they are not good it's not a good use of them to predict election results. Do candidates want to use polls to, you know, figure out what their campaign should do strategically? Yes, um, absolutely. But I think it would be a better use of sort of polling energy to direct the polls in terms of, you know, what policies do voters favor? What do voters want from their democratically elected representatives? You know, what, there are a lot of good uses for polling, but I think trying to predict election outcomes is not necessarily one of them. Does the media, and do many voters for that matter, put too much credence in poll watching and election forecasting? Yes. Yes. Well, Poll watching is important, uh, again, for the reasons I just mentioned. Of course, the campaigns want to have information about how to target voters and how their messages are playing out and where their candidates are strong and where they're not sort of demographically and in different regions. Um, but in terms of, you know, a good use of polling for the general public, again, it would be to, to have policymakers have a greater sense of the public's preferences and what people are thinking in their states and districts. In an age where many people seem to have lost trust in the media, does the emphasis on polling before the election, and especially if the polling results don't uh, follow the outcome of the race, does that further erode the public's trust in the media? It does. It does. And we are at a perilous point right now in terms of the division of Americans, in terms of people choosing media that reinforce their particular viewpoints. Um, and, and then we have a president who calls uh, the media fake news and talks about the polls a lot. And so I think, you know, in pollsters defense, the pollsters aren't telling us to, you know, sort of take their polls as a prediction of an election outcome, but that's what people are doing. And so it becomes problematic. The 2020 election saw enormous voter turnout. Which voting blocks tended to tack to either one or the other of the candidates? 
Well, in, in many ways, the patterns were similar to what they are historically. Um, we see voters of color overwhelmingly uh, prefer Democratic candidates, including, including Joe Biden. And a lot has been made of the fact that uh, a sizable percentage, um, sort of depending on the state you're looking at in the 30s or 40s, um, of Latinx men supported Trump. But those numbers actually aren't too inconsistent with what we often see. Hispanic, Latinx voters, you know, they're not a monolithic group, just as any other group is not a monolithic group. And so, um, but we do see patterns overall of voters of color being more likely to support Biden, especially Black voters. Um, we see women more likely to support Biden than Trump. Um, but once again, a majority of white women um, voted uh, for Trump, where women of color are overwhelmingly supportive of Democratic candidates and Joe Biden. We saw we see educational differences where those with college degrees are more likely to favor uh, Biden than Trump, and then sort of a more of a split among those without college degrees. So we see, you know, this increasing trend um, that was very pronounced four years ago and pronounced again this year, where voters in urban areas prefer Democratic candidates um, and voters in rural, more uh, sparsely populated areas prefer Republican candidates. As the demographics become more diverse in states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and Florida, Democrats have hoped to turn these traditionally red states blue. As of now, Biden holds leads in Arizona and Georgia, but lost in the other states. Why do Democrats tend to fall short in these states? Well, these states have long been very competitive. Um, and and once again, uh, you know, Latinx voters are not necessarily monolithic, even as majorities tend to prefer the, the Democratic candidates. And these are also states that saw vigorous campaigns um, by both candidates and both parties. And so, you know, certainly demographics are one predictor of support, but economics as well, um, party identification. So there are a lot of dynamics at play. And even as voters on both sides were highly mobilized. These are just competitive states, and I think will remain so. In 2018, a historic number of women were elected to Congress, but those gains were primarily driven by Democrats. How did Republican women fare in this election? Republican women had a great night when it came to House candidates. Um, their numbers, uh, I think, just about doubled, um, whereas uh, the same was not true for Democratic women. That said, um, still, Democratic women massively outnumber Republican women in the House of Representatives. Um, some of these races aren't called, but in the last Congress, there were actually only 13 Republican women, and I think the number is likely to about double. And so huge gains, but still, um, you know, a much smaller share, whereas Democratic women, you know, number in the, the low 80s, depending on the results of some final races. In the coming weeks, months, and even years, we will learn much more about the demographic breakdowns of voters in this election. What data will you be most interested in seeing, and what trends do you think will emerge? Well, certainly the exit poll data are important. And as many scholars point out, they are not perfect. Um, and the, the more closely you look at particular subgroups, the harder it is to generalize because the samples become slower. So a number of political scientists are doing survey research with big samples, um, including big samples of, uh, of voters of color. And I'm thinking uh, of a consortium of political science in the uh, CCES surveys. Um, it, 
so political science research will be coming out, but it's slower than the exit polls, um, but in the in the days and months to come. But the exit polls are certainly a good place to start. And they also provide for those overtime comparisons, which are quite interesting. Let's look at the election in Minnesota. Biden won by a larger margin than Clinton did in 2016. Did Trump lose voters in Minnesota this year or did Biden simply outperform Clinton? Trump did not lose voters. Um, Biden gained many, many more voters. And those voters came from Hennepin and Ramsey counties. Um, the increase, especially in Hennepin County, in voters for uh, Biden over Clinton was just enormous. I mean, of course, Hennepin County went for Clinton four years ago, but just many more voters came to the polls from Hennepin County um, in this election than they did four years ago. And because Hennepin County is so densely populated, that made all the difference in the statewide races. Tina Smith won her Senate seat. It looks like she will head to a Senate once again controlled by Republicans. Depending upon the outcome of the runoff vote in the Georgia Senate race in early January, if the Democratic candidates prevail in that race, that will then put the U.S. Senate at 50 Republican senators and 50 Democratic senators. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris then will cast the tie-breaking vote. What do you think Minnesota's two DFL senators will try to accomplish in Washington, given the uncertainty right now revolving around control of the Senate? Well, the two scenarios are quite different for Democrats. And I think that bolstering the Affordable Care Act is certainly on Democrats' agenda if um, they have uh, that 51 to 50 majority in the Senate with Harris's tie-breaking vote, um, as would uh, legislation uh, dealing with climate change, as would a more robust economic recovery package um, in the midst of COVID. And so certainly the Democrats' agenda would be would be more aggressive, but it would even with 50 Democratic votes in that tie-breaking vote, it would it still takes 60 votes to overcome a filibuster in the U.S. Senate. And so I think even with the prospects of unified party control of the House and the Senate uh, in the White House, sort of Democrats may have, have thought that the prospects for some of the more ambitious legislation, such as a Green New Deal, I think, you know, the that would still require 60 senators. And so it would be, it would have been difficult. Now there's an exception with some of the budget legislation because the budget reconciliation process only requires 51, but a lot of legislative efforts require 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. Were you at all surprised that the District 7 House seat long held by Colin Peterson will flip to the Republicans? I wasn't surprised because in general, in House and presidential races, there is less ticket splitting than there used to be. And that is a district that uh, went for Trump by 30 points in both 2016 and 2020. And so that it takes a lot of ticket splitting, as did occur in 2016, to vote Republican at the presidential level and Democratic at the congressional level. So that's why it wasn't surprising. On the other hand, um, Peterson was the most influential member of the House of Representatives when it came to agriculture policy. He chaired the House Agriculture Committee um, and he crafted um, or played a key role in crafting you know, numerous farm bills, which directly affect uh, a lot of voters in the seventh district. And so for that reason, um, his loss is surprising and making national news. It's also the case, though, that in uh, Michelle Fishbach, she was a challenger that had more experience, uh, a greater capacity to raise funds, more endorsements, more name recognition than Peterson's previous challengers had. So she was a more formidable candidate than his previous challengers had been. 
The first district was considered a house race to watch for a potential pickup for Democrats. Incumbent Jim Hagedorn narrowly won two years ago. What gave Hagedorn the edge over his DFL challenger again this year? Well, I think the fact that the Minnesota's first district goes Republican at the presidential level. I think it, you can't underestimate um, the top of the ticket in in all of these races. And so, um, you know, he certainly had is a one term incumbent, some incumbency advantage with the name recognition. Um, but the partisan advantage, I think, outweighed everything. It looks like Minnesota will maintain a divided legislature with Republicans controlling the Senate and Democrats controlling the House. Is this surprising? Uh, Once again, why were Democrats not able to take greater advantage of the success the party had in the statewide races? Right. Well, both in Minnesota and at the national level, um, Biden really did not have coattails. We usually think of presidential elections, that whichever party wins, that party picks up some House seats um, and picks up legislative uh, chambers across the country. And that did not happen, um, which was interesting. And one of the reasons it didn't happen in Minnesota is because of the nature of where the votes for Biden and Smith came from. And that is, of course, Hennepin County, Ramsey County, and uh, the suburbs. And for the most part, those are all areas where voters also elect DFL senators and representatives. And so Republican voters across the state are spread out more efficiently than Democratic voters. Um, In other words, Democratic voters are highly concentrated and their representatives win by big margins in the urban areas. And then um, with Republicans more spread out across the rest of the state, uh, oftentimes Republican legislators or senators uh, may win by smaller margins, but they do have more voters in more of those districts. And some of those districts are just extremely competitive. And so an individual campaign can make a difference. In quite a few state races, the legalized marijuana now party was able to get more than 5% of the vote. Has this party become a potential spoiler for the DFL? Yes, it has. And I think that dynamic, we saw at work in some of these legislative races as well. Uh, I should have noted that. And But I don't think that's likely to happen forever. Um, as, as more DFLers um, support the legalization of marijuana, I think that the impact will fade over time. Uh, but until until sort of that there's a resolution in Minnesota, um, I think that, that in some key races, um, those candidates, if they run a visible campaign, or even if they're just on the ballot with their party name, can be a spoiler for Democrats. When Governor Walls ran for office, he came out in support of legalizing marijuana. Do we have a feel if the majority of the DFL state leadership supports this position? And if so, why not make it more of a centerpiece platform issue and perhaps regain some of that five to seven percentage points the legalized marijuana party uh, received? That is a great question. And I suspect that after these election results, it's a question that um, the DFL caucus in both chambers will be asking itself. Uh, So uh, I don't have um, a great answer other than that I'm sure that that that's something that they're talking about. Uh, DFL speaker Melissa Hortman was not enthusiastic in the last session, but, uh, you know, who knows what conversations they're having now. It'll be interesting to see. In our last interview, we discussed the successful passage of a bonding bill in the Minnesota legislature. Do you think that divided government will be able to build off of that success, leading perhaps to more bipartisanship? 
I certainly hope so. With the narrow margins in both chambers, um, that should give both parties incentives to do so. But I'm worried about the deep partisan polarization and the partisan competition that we see. Farther out from an election, it might be easier um, than on the eve of an election in some ways uh, to work across party lines. On the other hand, I think being so close to an election also gave them an incentive to go back to their constituents and say that they got something done. So I hope so for the good of the state, but I also worry about the partisan competition and the partisan polarization. As we wait to hear whether President Trump will concede to Joe Biden, where does this leave Republicans at this point? We know that some Republicans, Mitt Romney, for example, there are others have come out and accepted uh, the victory of Joe Biden, congratulated him. Others have, uh, like Lindsey Graham, saying we need to count all the votes. And then a lot of Republicans are simply silent. Does not speaking out at this time create any potential peril for Republicans? I think for some it does. Um, And it depends, frankly, on the nature of their state or district. Um, But I think it does. And I think we we may see more Republicans speaking out in the days to come. But I I think a lot of Republicans are in a quandary. But but I want to go back to a point that we discussed earlier in the conversations. This is unprecedented. Um, for uh, a a losing president not to concede. And so, again, we'll see what happens in the coming days, but the pressure certainly will be on Republican elected leaders to say something. Catherine Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Pearson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure.